So let's turn to our reading for today. Um, Becca's going to come and read for us. We're going to read from Luke's Gospel. We've been reading Luke all this week in our Holy Week services, so we're going to read the first part of uh, Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. Uh, Yes, Becca, thank you. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how we told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So often on Easter Sunday, we focus on uh, the mechanics, if you like, not quite the mechanics, the events of, uh, of what happened on, on Easter Sunday morning, and, and rightly so, it's Easter Sunday. Why would you not retell and remember the story of, uh, of the gospel? I wonder if someone, I'm not sure someone coming against Sandros, just thank you. And so, rightly so, we look at what, what did happen and what we know happened uh, and, and try year on year, at least I try year on year, to, to, to work my way through the, the varying accounts, because the, the accounts don't all say quite the same thing, as witness statements tend not to do. Uh, witness statements tend to have variations, and bearing in mind that the Gospels were written some uh, 30, at least, uh, years after the, the, the events that they record. But we have this... Uh, focus on these events of Easter Sunday, of a a journey to the tomb very early on the first day of the week. And I was trying to imagine what very early on the first day of the week means or looks like in in Hebrew terms. I I reckon, I don't know if it's as late as seven or whether it's five or six, something like that. Um, I'm intrigued because I was doing a little bit of calculation and working out that from 3 p.m. on the Friday afternoon, through to, uh, let's say, 7 a.m., because that might be the point at which Jesus actually appeared, or even if it was a little earlier than that, it's about a period of about 38, 39, 40 hours, depending where you go. I like the thought that it might be 40 hours. (laughs) 40 is a biblical number of, of wholeness and completeness. We've looked at 40s before, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 year uh, 40, for, of Jesus' temptation, 40 years of the people of Israel. And so it seems to me not inappropriate that it might well have been a 40-hour period. Of course, in, in Semitic thinking, 
um, it was a three-day period, and, and someone said to me the other day, how is it three days? It's quite clearly, how can 40 hours be three days? Three days is 72 hours, right? But in Hebrew thinking, uh, the event that started on one day was day one, the event that carried on to the next day was day two, and the event that concluded on the day after that was day three. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday means that it was for three days, uh, even though that's not, strictly speaking, a 72-hour period. And so in that 40-hour period, we, uh, we were left with, with this big void, really, aren't we? I mean, apart from Jesus' body being taken down from the tomb, which Matthew and Luke tell us about, and being put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and Matthew tells us that the, the, the tomb was sealed and a guard was posted, although Mark, Luke, and John don't mention a guard at all. They don't seem to know anything about that. And so, after that, we're not really told very much at all until very early on the first day of the week. Now, just let me not make assumptions here. Why is it the first day of the week? Because uh, the Hebrew Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, you probably know this, but just in case there's one person who doesn't, runs from sundown on Friday evening till sundown on Saturday evening. Okay? So, preparation day is that bit of the Friday where everything's got to be done, food's got to be in, cooked, prepared, cleaning, preparation, because once the sun goes down, then all work stops, and that's the Sabbath. Uh, Ruth and I spent some time in Israel a long time ago when we first got married, and and we lived with a family in Jerusalem, and uh, they took the Sabbath very seriously, so Friday was, and, and the whole town where we were staying, well, we were in Jerusalem at that point, but every place we stayed in in Israel was a kind of frenzy on the Friday to get everything ready, and then at sundown, that's when the Sabbath uh, meal, the Sabbath service began in the home with, with a meal around the table and the Sabbath, Sabbath kind of liturgy, I suppose. And that would go right through until Saturday at sundown, and then the Sabbath is over. And so the Sabbath is open Saturday evening, which means bizarrely that uh, Saturday evening shops open, stalls come back out, and people start trading again on Saturday evening. And then Sunday is the first day of the week, because that's the beginning of a new weekly cycle. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified, uh, and Passover was celebrated on the Thursday, and the Friday there was a special Passover, because uh, a special um, Sabbath, sorry, because it was Passover. And so that's what we do know. And then when we come to the narratives of the resurrection, we find that some women, and, and each gospel gives us a slightly different list of names, they all seem to be agreed on the fact that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were there, although some have Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the mother of James, who was one of Jesus' half-brothers, and one has uh, the mother of Joseph, who's another of Jesus' half-brothers. And so there's different accounts. One mentions Joanna, one mentions Salome. Uh, and so there's uncertainty as to uh, who all of these women are that went. The reading that we read in Luke just now told us that it was Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them. So there were others with them. And so the gospel accounts uh, vary on exactly who. And then when they get to the tomb, 
uh, there's a different account. Matthew tells us that an angel came down and rolled the stone away. The others uh, have the stone already rolled away. Luke tells us there were two angels. Matthew and Mark tell us well, there was one, and John doesn't mention an angel at all. Now, I'm not saying that to disturb you. You can read all these comparatively yourself and see that that's the case. But in essence, actually, you get more truth from the points at which they agree than the points at which they disagree take away from truth, if that makes any sense. In other words, I had to give a witness statement recently for something. And I realized when I was giving a witness statement that I wasn't 100% sure of some of the things that I, was, that I was saying. I was pretty sure, but I wasn't 100% sure because uh, we had some kids trying to break in. Well, they, they, they smashed through a door upstairs and managed to get into the office, and they were, they were in the act of trying to bust open a safe when they were interrupted, and me and the cafe supervisor chased them through the streets. Of, well, chased one boy through the streets of Glasgow, and eventually he was caught. And so we had to give a report to the police about what happened. And then I'm suddenly thinking now, did he go down the tunnel there or was it that corner there? And I can't quite remember where, where we stopped and spoke to him, you know. And suddenly the details, when you're running, when you're stressed, when you're out of your usual head because something unusual is happening, you get details wrong. I'd have been interested to read mine and Becca's, not this Becca, and other Becca's reports because I'm sure that they weren't exactly the same. That's just what happens when you're under stress. And so we, we read of the women going. We read of angels. We're, we're certainly told that the angels had clothes that were gleaming like lightning, some kind of ultraviolet on white effect. We know that they, they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? That's consistent amongst them all. He is not here. He is risen. We know that they went back and told the others. We know that Peter came to see the tomb for himself, but John tells us that John came too, and also he got there first. And that they found the clothing in the tomb, but they didn't find the body. And then only John tells us about Mary's encounter with the one she thought was the gardener. And so we have all of these narratives there's an, there's an old book, I've forgotten the author's name, Who Moved the Stone? Frank. Mm. Oh, that's annoying. Which takes all of these accounts and weaves them into a consistent narrative. But what about the parts we know nothing about? I know an argument from silence is not a strong argument, but I'm intrigued to reflect on the parts that we do not witness. And particularly, I want, to think, I want to think about, first of all, about faith. What was it that they were believing or not believing at this time, and did it matter? Because what they all had in common was that they believed that Jesus was dead. They believed that Jesus was dead because they had seen that with their own eyes, and they'd seen 
a corpse taken down from a cross and wrapped in linen, uh, and, and uh, which Joseph had bought in a hurry between 3 and 6 p.m. on Friday when the shops were still open after Jesus died and before the Sabbath. And so it was a very hurried affair, buying the linen, wrapping the body, and getting him to the tomb. So hurried that there was no time to observe the usual customs, which are to embalm the body with, with uh, fragrant spices, to decrease the, the impact of the smell of, 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 uh, of death and decomposition. But there's no time for any of that. They were all caught unawares. No one was prepared for a burial. Quite literally not prepared for a burial. And so we're told that the women had prepared spices for Jesus' burial. And the only way they could have done that then, if they hadn't had time to do it before the body was buried, was they must have done that on Saturday evening when the shops opened again. After the Sabbath was over, they must have purchased the spices and prepared them, because it tells us that they took the spices they had prepared. Well, when did they prepare them? The only time they had to do it, when they knew they would need to do it, would be Saturday night. And so they must have gone and bought spices and mixed them up and done the appropriate uh, burial mix, no doubt including a hefty dose of myrrh, uh, which was a sign and a symbol of death and one of the spices that were used. And it tells us in Mark chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So there we are, Saturday evening. But of course, it was too dark and too late for them to go and do anything about actually embalming the body until first thing on Sunday morning. And out of respect for Jesus and their tradition, and in order to make sure that the body didn't start to smell in the hot Middle Eastern sun, they went first thing in the morning in the cool of the day. And so, when they'd seen the body placed there. Perhaps they hadn't stayed to see the tomb, tomb closed and sealed, or they just hadn't factored in. It hadn't occurred to them when they knew they had to take the spices that they would need to get this tomb open again, and they'd not thought about the manpower that was needed to shift this massive disk of stone from across the entrance to the tomb. And so we, we read that when they saw that the stone was rolled away, it led them to wonder but not to believe. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, the, the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so then these two angels appeared in clothes that gleamed like lightning, and the women reacted as you or I would react with fear, prostrating themselves before the angels. But it doesn't say anything about what they did or didn't believe. They didn't know what was going on, or they had no frame of reference for this. And the angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And then the angels say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And so with a little prompting from the angels, they began this critical journey 
I mentioned a guy who, who came in here on Thursday night and when we were cleaning the floor, and I was having a conversation with him, and he was one of those people of whom there are many for good and understandable reasons, and I've been one and you've been one who, who, who want to say, well, show me the proof, and then I'll believe, <laughs> which is a bit of an oxymoron. It doesn't quite make sense. Show me the proof. If someone shows you the proof, it's not about belief anymore. It's just about common sense and logic, isn't it? If someone shows you the proof, you'd be daft not to believe, and now then you're not believing, you're just agreeing. So proof and belief cannot go hand in hand. And so this word from the angels was a prompt, a prompt to them to remember a word that Jesus had spoken in order to aid them in their belief. We're not going on. I'm going to preach on it tonight, but the story of the Emmaus Road is a story where this unknown stranger accompanies two disciples on a road to Emmaus. And in that journey, begins by asking them what they're upset about. And then when they tell him about Jesus and the events of the last few days, this stranger begins to take them through the Scriptures of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? in order that they might see and understand that this was already foretold, in order that their anxiety and their stress and their fear and their confusion might be put out of the way. Why? In order that they might believe. Because that is where you and I and these women, and Peter and John, and all the other disciples are in exactly the same situation. Maybe you say, you know, it's not fair. They got to see this stuff. They got to see the stone rolled away and the body not there. They got to see Jesus. Well, do you know in my reading in the Gospels, it didn't help them too much. They were kind of slow to believe because they put logic and common sense and allowed their grief and their non-comprehension to get in the way of what it was that they were called to, which is to believe that which goes against reason, that which you don't normally see. Now, bear in mind, Peter, John, and the other disciples three times had seen dead people come alive again. Certainly Peter, James, and John. They were with Jesus when he raised Lazarus's, uh, sorry, Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John were taken in with Jesus and the parents of the little girl. So they'd seen Jesus raise that little girl to life. They, they had now a frame of reference that said death can be overcome. They had been with Jesus when he placed his hand on the coffin of a young boy the only son of his mother who was a widow in the town of Nain, and Jesus speak life and call that boy and give him back to his mother. And they had all been with Jesus as he stood outside Lazarus' tomb and yelled, Lazarus, come out. Three times they had witnessed dead people walking. And it didn't seem to have done them any good in terms of stretching their capacity to imagine or believe that Jesus too 
could be raised from death to life. And maybe logic overtook them, and he said, well, it was Jesus who did that on all three occasions. He's not here, therefore that can't happen. The angels turned the women back to the word that Jesus had spoken. Because all they had, and you have, and I have, is the word of God. This is what God says and has said. You cannot go back 2,000 years in time, and you cannot travel 2,000 miles. Well, you could do that bit, but you can't travel back in time. And prove. And if you did, would it help you any more than it helped them? The mystery of God is this, that He reveals His wonder, His resurrection power. He reveals who He is. He reveals all that we need for salvation and life as we believe. As we believe. We're called to walk by faith in that which we cannot see or prove, to entrust our lives to one whom we have never touched or seen or known physically. But just bear in mind that the disciples who for three years had done all of those things, it didn't help them get it right. The lights only went on as they took the risk of believing. And conversely, it was the people who had not believed who did not get to see. Judas did not get to see. Judas, it seems, had not believed. The two Emmaus disciples, Emmaus Road disciples, did not get to see who Jesus was in the breaking of the bread until after they had come to believe and take the risk of seeing from Scripture that actually death and resurrection were part of the plan. Thomas would not believe until and unless he saw. And so for you, do not imagine that your walk with the Lord is in any way deficient because you don't have the advantages. Do not imagine that you don't have the basis to entrust your life or to know the power of the resurrection because you're not in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The transformation didn't happen for them any more than it will happen for you until and unless you make the journey to believe. John 20 verse 5 explains their confusion in these words, saying, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You see, we have Scripture and they have Scripture. That's what we're called to, to trust in the truth of God's Word and put our faith in what He's said. And so, thinking about that time between 3 o'clock on Friday and 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, what was going on? Well, there was a time of rest a Sabbath rest. I'm interested, interested in the fact that uh, Jesus 
was put to death on the sixth day of the week. The sixth day, of course, in creation was the day when humankind was created. It was the crowning point of creation, and then we're told on the seventh day, God rested from all His labors. And the Sabbath day is the rest day, as Jesus, physically at least, was laid to rest in the tomb. The Son of Man, the new Adam, as it were, created on the sixth day, or Adam, the original Adam, rather, created on the sixth day, the new Adam offered on a cross on behalf of all humankind on the sixth day, and then a moment, a day of rest. Now, I'm not for a moment going to speculate as to just what Jesus did in those 40 hours, because I don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us clearly. I'm intrigued by the suggestion of the possibility that actually for the first day, Jesus rested. <laughs> Jesus rested. And then as Mary and the others were buying spices and preparing to anoint a dead body, thinking that was the end of the matter, I wonder if that's the point at which Jesus, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, and we, uh, uh, did we sing that line? Yes, I think we did. He descended into hell. It's a line in the Apostles' Creed that, that, we, that we read. What, is, what does it mean? In the Old Testament, we read of a place called Sheol. Sheol is the place of the souls of the dead, the righteous souls and the wicked souls. And Sheol in the New Testament is, treated, is, is, is translated as the Greek word Hades. And so it's this place of the dead. And there are various references in the Old and the New Testament to it being a, a place under the earth, a, a city with gates, according to Isaiah, a place of darkness, of shades, of shadowy souls, a place, we're told in the Psalms, where no one praises God, the picture that is given, and it's some of it poetic, and you have to be careful in interpreting poetic language in Isaiah or, or, or the Psalms too literally, but it's a place where dead souls go. And it seems to be a place where within that there uh, is a, a place of, uh, of, of, of refuge and safety and a place of, uh, of punishment or for the wicked in the New Testament, we read the story, and it's depicted in the painting over there on the wall of the rich man and Lazarus. And we read that, that when, the, when Lazarus died, he was carried to Abraham's side, and he was in a place of comfort and consolation in death. And meanwhile, the rich man was in a place of torment. And so, we have this picture of, of Sheol or Hades. It's a place where the spirits of the dead departed are trapped while their bodies uh, decompose on earth. Now, the thief on the cross 
said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, we can't press it too far. And time becomes a difficult factor as well. What happens when you die? Do you just step outside of time and, and it's no longer a relevant factor? I don't know. I am intrigued by these things and I struggle with these things. But what we do know, and Second Peter tells us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. And so Jesus died in the body, but was alive in the Spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. That's 2 Peter 3, verses, uh, verse 19. And so Jesus journeys to the city of the dead, and rips its gates off its hinges and liberates from that place of holding, that place of death. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John the Baptist, all the Old Testament faithful. He liberates them all from the claws and the hold of death in order that they might enter into the presence of God where Jesus will enter as the firstfruits. Why is it good news? This silent Saturday, these events that took place, and yesterday you went about your ordinary business because we don't really know what we're supposed to do with Easter Saturday because we're not sure what they did with it. They rested on it. They prepared to anoint Jesus' body thinking that was all. And while they were preparing to embalm a corpse, Jesus was breaking open the stronghold that is death and setting free and releasing to enter into the presence of God all those who had been trapped in the grip of death and were waiting for the one who would come and set them free. And so Jesus was not idle or simply sleeping in death. Jesus bore our punishment for sin, bore the guilty verdict for all those who'd already died and gone ahead, and Jesus set them and us and all of those who believed free at the time. And so on Sunday, as we rec remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus we celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but we celebrate the fact that Jesus has broken death and entered into the depths of everything that death sought to, to, to hold on to, and he set them free. He set them free. The moment where everyone who had gone before was liberated from death. The moment where Jesus set free all those who were living at the time, and the moment where Jesus broke the power of death for you and me who were yet to come in the future. The first Adam created on the sixth day, the second Adam offered up as a sacrifice for broken, fallen humankind, 
on the sixth day. And then after a day of rest, a whole new beginning, a whole new chapter, a whole new promise, a whole new reality, available and accessible to anyone in any place and generation who believes that it is so. And that's all you're asked to do. You're asked to believe. You're asked to believe that Jesus has already died your death for you. You're asked to believe that Jesus has already broken the gates of the city of death where you might otherwise have been held captive. You're asked to believe that Jesus used that time that we don't know what to do with to set the captives free. So that when those hapless disciples and the women on the Sunday morning began to piece together the elements that went against everything their logic and their senses told them, the angels and then Jesus steadily urged them to believe. Why? Because you will never see the proof of this stuff until first you believe it. Believe and know that the power of death has been broken. Believe and know that your death has been overcome. Believe and know that Jesus has already entered into it for you, and it has no fear or power over you. Yes, none of us relishes the process or the prospect of the process, but beyond that, have no fear. Have no fear, because Jesus has promised all those who believe in what he has said, that he has the power. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Death has been broken. And your future, eternally, not just temporally, has been changed and transformed because of what he did then. And so I don't know what you did yesterday. Well, I know what some of you did because you told us earlier on. But actually, we have the freedom. We have the freedom to live out Easter Saturday and every Saturday and every in-between in the knowledge that we are safe in the hands of Jesus, who invites us to believe and know that our greatest enemy has been overcome and defeated and that he, he is Savior and Lord and conqueror over death. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Loving God, as we remember the jigsaw puzzle pieces of that confusing Easter Sunday morning and the steady revelation that flowed, it was all in order that people might believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and who have believed, you said to Thomas. And so we take his words and recognize that as we believe without seeing, we enter into blessing. We enter into the fullness, Lord, of what you did even whilst no one could see what you were doing, breaking free those imprisoned in death 
and inviting them to journey into the Father's presence and into the paradise that you've prepared. Thank you, Lord, that you've prepared a place for us. Thank you for the power of resurrection. And Lord, as we go into this coming week, as we live out our lives here, uncertain of what they may look like, Lord, may we live with a joyful confidence in knowing that our deepest need, potentially our biggest fear, has been overcome upon a cross and from an empty tomb. Accept, Lord, the praise and the worship and the adoration that we bring. In Jesus' name, amen.